All right, great. We're back. I can't find the music, but it's here somewhere, and we're going to play it. So I'm not just saying things. Oh, my goodness. There it is. We're back <laughs> live. Only two minutes late. I know you guys were all counting the seconds waiting for us to appear on your screen. Welcome to SwitchCast Live. I'm your host, Doug Tabbitt, founder of Switch Cars, Cannonball Record Holder. And with me tonight is my guest, Tom Larrick, founder of Larrick Motorsports. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about BMVs tonight, or BMWs <laughs> as we say in America. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be answering a lot of technical questions about BMWs. There's a lot of them because they're crap, right? Not as good as Porsches. <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> Right? You started a BMW shop so you'd have job security, is that it? We have job security, just like every other German car. I think if everyone drove like a Toyota, we'd be kind of screwed. Right, right. But the, the ironic thing about that is a, a friend of mine runs a Italian car shop. And okay. He says he has job security and he won't work on Porsches, not because he doesn't like them, but because he'd be out of a job if he worked on German cars. They're so reliable on a relative scale. On a relative scale, yeah. No, he, <laughs> he works on Italian and British cars. Anyway, Tom Larrick is a local boy here in Cleveland. He's started a couple of businesses, most notably Larrick Motorsports or LMS, which is a highly regarded BMW specialist shop in the Northeast Ohio area. And He's here to help me answer all of your BMW questions because I know I certainly can't. All I know is what they're worth and that they look cool and are fun to drive. But Tom knows the, the down and dirty about all that stuff. So, Tom, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for being here with mm -hmm. us. If you'd like to call in live to join us and ask your questions, the number is 216-294-4124. Or you can post your questions in the comment flow of wherever you're joining us live. And I have to apologize. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty this week. So uh, those of you watching us will not have the full audio quality uh, that you're used to because we're using the, the camera audio. Uh, but if you join us on the, the downloaded podcast, everything will be uh, normal. Uh, so uh, we'll proceed from there. So, Tom, give us a little bit of background on you and how you got to be working in BMWs. So how did I get to? All right. That's an excellent question. So, well, that's <laughs> they're all excellent they're all, questions. I guess that's what I do here. So, since a very young age, I've always been intrigued with vehicles and aviation, actually, cars and planes. And growing up, my father had three Austin Healy's at that time. Oh, and uh, pretty cool cars now, really small, compact cars, small sports cars. Mm -hmm. And I was exposed to that kind of, I guess you could say, lifestyle car meets get-togethers, things like that, that all revolved around the Austin Healey mm -hmm. and British cars in general, which at that time were MGs, a few Jaguars, typically the older Jaguars. And um, and I kind of, uh, that's how I kind of found interest in vehicles. Did most of those car meets happen in people's garages or at the junkyard, so, given that they were British cars? Or <laughs> Well, I guess sometimes a car meet could turn into a junkyard, depending <laughs> on the issue that was unsolvable was at that particular time. Was it sponsored by AAA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were yeah. more tow trucks there than cars. Yeah. Back then, before speed dial, I'm sure a lot of people had, like, on their, fridger their refrigerator magnets had... Yeah. 
good tow vehicle shops or people like that and and the guy who offers the most scrap <laughs> you know it, this isn't a british car joke we'll go back to making fun of italian cars but i was out at radwood in southern california and there's a fiat barquetta of some sort driving through the parking lot and in california you can have hearts on your license plates and his license plate on his fiat was i heart triple a that is the best plate ever okay so you grew up working or or, or being around your dad going to british car meets with austin healy's yes Mm -hmm. we had this awesome picture of you at a young age in an engine bay of an austin healy yeah so did you start wrenching young i did i started uh, messing around with these vehicles i can't remember what i was actually doing that day but that was a pretty rare healy it was a 3000 tricarb and the tricarbs it's uh it's most of them have the dual Webers at the time. And this had mm-hmm. three Webers, I believe at that time. And I just, whether or not I was, I just like taking things apart and putting them back together. And I got pretty good at doing those kind of things. So yeah. getting into the car business was, I guess, something that started off at a very young age for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you play with Legos as a kid as well? I had, I had some Legos. Okay. So Legos were cool. I feel like that's a part of the, the formative taking apart and putting things yeah. back together but as I, well. Yeah, I think you grow out of Legos because there's not that intricate at times sure. for the Legos. So Right. And uh, you get another thing. I think Rector sets were one thing that actually had yeah. metal nuts and bolts and yep. all kinds of other things that, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, so did you grow up in the States? Yes, I did. I'm okay. originally from Akron, Ohio. Okay. So, and uh, I lived in Wadsworth. I lived in Akron and yeah, currently in the Bath area. So, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And your your heritage is Japanese. Is that correct? So, yeah, my mom is originally from Japan. Mm-hmm. And my dad was, uh, he's from the Wadsworth area of uh, Serbian and Croatian heritage. Okay. So that's where I think I get my European Working on car thing. Right. From. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the bloodlines would suggest that you like tune GTRs for, for drifting or something like that. But okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but your dad had British cars. So, all right. Um, that's cool. Did you go to college? Did you go to technical school? What, how did you get from working on cars as a kid to, I want to do this for a living? Well, I always had, I had an interest in BMW. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of from a young age and i'll kind of tell you how it worked it's kind of a funny story so a best friend of mine um he actually he was in the uh bath area at one point going to school together and around the time we went to high school he had to go off to kansas city for his father's job and he went there for about four years upon his return after his high school we found out this guy didn't have a driver's license and i'm sure he's listening <laughs> to us right now that being said, when he came up here, he had nobody to drive him around. And we went back pretty far. So at that particular time, and this is probably about 1998, he had a E34, I think it, it was E34 525.5 series. Beautiful red car, five-speed manual, kind of rare. And they also had, I think it was like a 96 Z4 um, Atlanta Blue is the same one that was featured in that James Bond movie. I can't tell Z3. you. Or Z3. Yes, yep. the Z3. I can't Ooh, tell that you. That might what. be the only time I correct him on a BMW thing. Yeah. I, I need everybody to take a note of that. Yeah, Z3, Z4s. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't said Z3 in a long time. 
because half of them aren't on the road anymore. <laughs> oh, come the, on. The, the last are super, they're, they're like, bulletproof. They're good cars. And one of the last notable ones that I remember working on was one that you sent me. I think it was a 98 M Roadster. And it was actually Dynan's S1 oh, number yeah. one. That was yeah, an, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah. It was the Dynan S2, so it didn't have the supercharger, but it had everything else, and it was essentially their prototype slash press car. It yeah. was yeah, and I believe that that car was on, featured in Car and Driver as well on as well as the BMW magazine, the Rondell at one yep. point. Yeah. So that being said. This guy doesn't have a license. Do you so. want to know what I bought that car for the first time around? <laughs> I think I got it for like sixteen grand. <laughs> oh man, depressing. Those were the days. All right, continue. <laughs> and continue. Uh, and he had a couple cars I could drive around. One was his five twenty five, and the other one was the Z three at that time. Mm-hmm. And at that particular time, I was really I was exposed to mostly Jaguar at that time couple Mercedes, but I never really drove BMWs. And I was just very, very impressed, especially with the braking. The first time you're used to especially driving like American vehicles and you start getting into a BMW, you notice the braking is really, really good. Mm-hmm. And the handling too. It's just kind of turn the wheel and it points itself safely in, in you know this direction most of the time. Well, they were called the ultimate driving machine. They so were. Mm-hmm. You would expect that. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of how I started having the appreciation for the BMW, and after driving those two vehicles at that particular time, the latest variant of the M3 was the E36 M3. Mm-hmm. So naturally, I'm starting to like these cars. I like sports cars. I said, I got to get me one of these. <laughs> and that's how it started. I picked up a 95 M3 Luxury, and I think it was 1999. So, and cool. five-speed. Okay. And uh, it was silver. Luxury interior, black with the the wood on there, and it was a really cool car. And I can't say I re- missed that car, but E36 is a pretty good car. Yeah. So. So when did you start your shop? I started the shop later that year. Ninety nine. That's correct. And okay. the shop, even though it was a registered LLC, and I was still working out of a garage at that point, my nice. own garage, and it was kind of a side did the EPA hustle. EPA know this. They didn't, but zoning found out years, years later after I was already moved, I think, to the peninsula area at that mm-hmm. point. So it was not relevant to zoning <laughs> issues at that point. But um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, so in college, when I start, I started at the University of Akron in 1997, and I was actually a music performance major. Really? In classical guitar. Yeah. Okay. High so school. So you went from tuning instruments to tuning cars. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Here we go. Music perform. Did you grow up with a musical background? No, not really. So why? There, there was something that always intrigued me about music. Whether it was you know walking into a store and somebody had some kind of keyboard out there and was playing some kind of riff. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody was you know strumming a guitar here and there and at a store. This is back when you know stores had kind of musical instruments. Now you know you have to go to a music store to find a guitar. Right. And it always intrigued me, the sound of music. And I remember back in even elementary school, when we had music class, I wasn't so big in the theory and the note reading, but I just liked the sounds of all these kind of different instruments. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting way to get to music performance major because I... uh, 
I don't know how to equate it, but I have a lot of friends who are professional musicians and mm-hmm. have gone to CIM and have sure. BW and have done the the high level musical education, yeah. mm-hmm. and they all they're all background. I mean, you could just ask every single one of them. Were you three or four when you started playing cello or what? Like they have these extensive musical backgrounds, and it's kind of humorous <laughs> to hear you be like, "Well, I like the." look at guitars and you know the the homeless street musicians really inspired (laughs) me to go to musical performance school so i just that's that's a that's a background i've never heard for that yeah so you went to musical school and then you decided to fix cars and so through musical through musical school um one thing is i was also working at a repair facility at that time on on, for vehicles and it was kind of weird. I had this old Jeep Grand Cherokee at the time. And, you know, growing up kind of with these Austin Healy, seeing my dad uh, work on certain vehicles, I had some con- mechanical aptitude to things. With And so I was having problems with this Jeep Grand Cherokee. And um, basically, I, I couldn't really figure it out. So I took it to this automotive shop. Mm-hmm. And at this automotive shop, um, I kind of told him what was going on and, you know, gave it in for a diagnostic. And, and back then, this was pre-OBD2, so back then you had this expensive machine that basically you're hooking up to the car, you're reading all the parameters, you're checking for exhaust. Um, you actually have, like, these connectors that you're putting on, like, each ignition wire to check for pulses. I mean, it's mm, it was very yep. complicated back then to actually diagnose certain of these vehicles. And it found out there was a cracked, maybe I cracked it, maybe it came cracked. It had a cracked um, ignition cap on it okay. for the coil. And after talking, and after the, and um, after discovering that, the owner's like, you kind of know a lot. And I'm sure he was probably desperate for people to work for him <laughs> at that time. Not that he was a, a bad guy or anything. Sure. But I immediately started working for him. And I started working on everything at that particular point. So, I mean, it was, you know, a lot of, you know, oil changes, Japanese cars, things like that. Okay. And I was doing that through the first couple of years of college. But so I was a music performance major. I was working on cars on the side. And what happened was I was just kind of introduced to this kind of car scene at the University of Akron, you know. Um, once you get out of the bubble of high school, now you're going to a college, you're, you're meeting other people from places all over the world. And there was, you know, a good amount of BMWs and just, you know, European cars out there. So I started hanging out with those kind of people more cause I really enjoyed the vehicles. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I, um, I switched majors in 2000. I stopped, I started, I stopped going to the university of Akron. I transferred to Stark State's automotive uh, program, mm-hmm. and I was there for two years. Then after that, besides various BMW classes, I also did the BMW. It's called it was the Fast Track program. Okay, they don't have the Fast Track program anymore. Now they have the Step program, which essentially is you're signed, you're getting trained by BMW if you're selected, and after you take their classes, I think you're taking this is probably about a two year contract with them. Because they're investing all this money into your right. education. They all want you to go working for somebody else at that right. particular time. So I did the fast track program to learn more about these vehicles. And it's kind of, I started working on a few BMWs and became very knowledgeable. And I, you could say just fluent in the, in, in the repairs of the vehicle and, mm-hmm. and diagnostic procedures. And, you know, that's kind of how I started the Larich Motorsport thing. Okay. 
So, All right. So mm-hmm. you start working out of your garage, mm-hmm. similar to Bill Gates. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long did it take for you to go from working out of your garage to getting your first location? So shop? I moved over to the Peninsula location, and the Peninsula location was like mid two thousands. So okay. a lot year and a half. No, at no at that point, no. It was more like about four or five years. I okay. mean, I'm talking full lift. Um, it, a lot of I spent. I invested a tremendous amount of money in proper diagnostic tools, mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah. it was about I think about mid two thousands where I moved over to the Peninsula area, right okay. across from the Auro Steel. Yep, and uh, started in there with one lift. Yeah, and, and it was just you working on cars. That's correct, yeah. Okay, and how long before you hired another tech? It was probably, I went probably about three years. Okay. So I got the the first technician. And myself going to Stark State, I really never knew how to shop around for technicians. So I talked to a couple of our instructors out there, and they recommended me this one guy. And uh, he was a little bit older to college standards, I think at that time in his 30s or so, early Mm -hmm. 30s. And uh, he was looking for a career change. He was building landing gears over somewhere in the Cleveland area. And um, that company, something happened to that company, whether it changed ownership or I'm not sure exactly what happened. They they subbed it out to a different company, got bought up. I'm not really sure. So that was the other technician that started working for me at that time. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. All right, and how did that work out? Was it everything you had hoped it was i got very very fortunate that he's still currently a technician and probably the lead guy okay at this particular time so that's awesome very very lucky in that sense and the nice thing the nice thing about that was instead of taking a technician who's well experienced which is i mean it's, it's good to have an experienced technician but you're kind of taking somebody with a high mechanical aptitude you know, highly skilled, highly intelligent, actually. And, uh, you know, taking them and just kind of grooming them into being, this is how to properly work on a BMW. And properly mm-hmm. means proper diagnostic. And with that, you need proper tools, proper equipment. And, of course, you have to have the proper knowledge, too. Sure. And that's why so many people can't work on them properly, and I hate to say that. What's the difference between working on a BMW and working on a t- Toyota? Like you the, see, the, the lot, log, logician in me says like, okay, diagnostics is diagnostics. Like you have engine performance, you have, you start looking for things. It's a process of elimination and you know, you go through what you know about cars and you get down to what the, the root of the problem is. Right. So tell me, tell me how I'm wrong. Well, the difference, I mean, at the end of the day, all is it's nuts and bolts that you take apart. And yes, they are very, very similar. But as you know, especially when you're dealing with Porsche, you've seen more things that some Porsche technicians have seen just from being in the business that you're in. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, common problems, common faults. Right. And you can just get those on the forums, right? I, that's what they say, but I try not to read a lot of those forums because someone can really piss me off because some of them throw these, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of these people on these forums, Jesus, it's like, do you really understand what is going on? And I feel- But I f- they're engineers. 
internet engineers. Tom. <laughs> now, there is a lot of really good stuff out there that you read and some unique problems that happen, but there's also a lot of really bad misinformation, and I feel kind of bad that, you know, people aren't, uh, it's not regulated enough. I mean, right. at least, uh, oh, yeah, right. yeah. We need fact checkers on all the forums. <laughs> we should. We should. This this post on subframe cracking has been flagged as misinformation, <laughs> potentially misleading. This could cause you harm. <laughs> Even though that is something that has happened in the BMW world. <laughs> at least in two Oh, yeah, E36s. And I, oh, uh, the subframe, not the yeah, misinformation yeah. <laughs> thing. I thought the I forums just... were being policed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Okay, so uh, that leads me into one of my questions. So Uh forums often overstate common issues. They may be real issues, but like, you know, the subframe cracks on Audi R8s. Like, you'd think it happened to all of them, and it's happened to like three total. Uh, IMS failures on early 996s, rod bearings, Thanos, subframe issues on M3s. Like, how... How many of those issues on BMWs are real? Like, hey, you need to check every car versus this is internet folklore. Well, um, how do I go about saying this? <laughs> because we specialize in really two brands, BMW and Mini, you're not really diluting any of your knowledge on other vehicles. So with that being said, you're able to become a, you're essentially a specialist in the field. Yeah. And there's certain cars of certain errors that, you know, if we it comes into our shop, I, I know what to look for, as well as our trained technicians know exactly what to look for, as well as I hope most dealership technicians know what to mm-hmm. look for. And dealership technicians, a lot of them are really, really good, too. There's a lot of good technicians out there, but, you know, sometimes a service advisor may not be your favorite person. Right. It's really hard to say, but they're really good out there. Yeah. And... um but that's you know the main reason why we specialized in those so we're very familiar with the vehicle because you know let's face it it's a BMW somebody might get behind the wheel and drive 150 miles an hour right i have to be sure that everything i did possible to make that car mechanically correct if he chooses to do that whether on road or off the road we need to do the best of our ability to make now sure how, the car's safe how often are you doing okay so let's talk about like you know the red herring of of BMWs, the subframe cracks on the the E thirty E forty sixes and the mm-hmm. um, the M threes and Z threes and all that. Um, do you actually see those cracked often, or is that just a, okay? Well, we know it's an issue, so we do preventive fixes on those. So we re- we just do a constant like on the E thirty six, and as you know in Ohio, they really don't exist on the road as much as some other states. Let's say mm-hmm. a, a, let's say a snow salt rust free state, California, for right, example. They're everywhere. Yeah, you can find a nice E thirty here and there, nice E thirty six, but out here a lot of them died of rust, mm-hmm. and you know just people they get neglected after like the fourth fifth owner, but. There are certain things that you could do. It's just every time you see the vehicle, you just have to inspect the subframe in this particular case. And if you do see a crack, there are certain things that you have to do, and they aren't cheap because it entails removing the whole rear subframe and actually Mm -hmm. fixing the the frames of the vehicle to make this correct. Sure. And same thing with the E46. I saw in my whole 18 years of wrenching and being a technician – I've only seen one subframe failure, and it was on an E46. I think it was like a 325 or 330, mm-hmm. a non-M car. And 
if I remember correctly, the car had like 18,000 miles on it. Hmm. And that was the first subframe crack and only subframe crack that I can remember I ever saw. One. Hear that mm-hmm. internet. He saw one. That's what I, that's We're not what, saying it's not an issue, but you saw one. Well, that's what I've seen in this area. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, the way, I, I mean, as a dealer, we get these questions all the time. And not that I'm, you know, I, I can't tell you how many front uh, uh, tubs of the R8s I've pulled out to inspect the subframe just because somebody read online. And, and in mm-hmm. fairness, there was an NHTSA recall for them. I found, I think, two instances of them actually happening online, and both were either heavily modified cars or like, oh, yeah, that guy, like, Evil Knievel borrowed the car. Yeah. And then it had a subframe crack. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of silly because people are just like, you know, it's, again, it's the IMS of of Porsches. Oh, well, send me subframe pictures. Send me weld pictures. And I'm just like, we've never, ever seen one. Not that we've seen hundreds, but we've seen dozens We've never, and, ever seen one with the welds pop, and, ever. Yeah, and it, it's kind of like, so the whole IMS bearing thing, I think that mostly took place in the 996. Yes. And and that was a big problem. Some of them, they were 12% failure rate. Yeah. That's... So from my understanding, a good friend of mine that worked at Porsche Beachwood that moved on to the uh, the headquarters in Atlanta, and he's Kellen? part... Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I... When I know about Porsche, I know a lot from him telling mm-hmm. me. And if memory serves me correct, I think after 30,000 miles, your chance of IMS bearing failure is about 1%. Because mm-hmm. what happens is you get some of these people, um, you run into a lubrication problem with the IMS bearing. Yep. And what happens is, as you know, the oil is, the oil pumps the positive displacement, meaning the more you take up the revs, the more pressure you get. That's the way it is. And some of these people weren't driving the cars hard enough to put sufficient amount of lubrication on that whole shaft and the bearing. Well, the bearing and, wasn't lubricated. Mm-hmm. But uh, they had, but they had, yes. So the shafts would fail too. The whole IMS. Right. Yep. Yeah. And and at that point too, the shafts would fail because they weren't running the cars hard enough to build yes. up the sufficient oil pressure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, I've I've yeah. I've heard that as well. D- differently stated, but same mm-hmm. thing. Like the cars that don't get driven. And the ones that never mm-hmm. see 5,000 RPM are the ones that fail. Um, yeah, so the <laughs> it's funny, too, because people say, like, oh, well, this car's low mileage. It doesn't need the IMS. I go, no, exact it, opposite. It, like, yeah. car has 100,000 miles. People go, should I replace the IMS? No, it freaking has 100,000 miles. Yeah. It probably won't fail. It still could, but the odds are highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. Every low mile one we buy, it's like, man, freaking do the IMS right just, away. Just do the IMS. I would, you know, do the rear main seal when you're in there as well. Yeah. That's about it. And there's a couple yep. things you can check for, too, that are easily to access when the transmission's yep. out of those cars. Might as well but, put a new motor in because bore scoring, you know, <laughs> those things, they're all just, just throw them away. Oh, I'm sure you'd sell them the one, right, Doug? Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, like, on that question, rod bearings, right? E90 yeah. and E92 rod bearings. Yes. Is that a, a Porsche IMS thing? Is that an overblown problem or is that, like, a real thing, like? This, it, this needs to be done. It's a, it's a real thing that, that needs to be done. And as you know, with the Germans, there's always this thing that maybe the bearings were defective. And typically, BMW only manufactures, as I believe most German car uh, German manufacturers, BMW themselves manufacture like 2 or 3% of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Meaning the other 90% plus of that is all subcontracted out. There's not too many parts that are genuine BMW. Everything's subcontracted out. Then sent to the assembly lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that being said, you, 
they tried to, the defective um you had the defective rod bearings on on that would that that would have been the s65 at that time but yes that is something that you really need to look for mm-hmm. and the nice thing about that job is on a lift it really takes and i know some people are going to hate me for saying this but it really takes if, if you're fluent enough with the vehicle and familiar you can get the job done in six or eight hours okay on that particular case but it's something, especially if you're tracking the vehicle and you're doing oil changes five, six, seven thousand miles, which is still an, a, um, under the threshold of you know too, too long of an oil change. The rod bearings, you probably want to change them if you're tracking the car. But I would say every couple of years, or if you're a normal performance street driver, like every thirty thousand miles. So there's no permanent fix. As of right now, there's no permanent fix gotcha. for the rod bearing issue. Okay. Yeah, on the S65s that I know of. Mm-hmm. Which is, it, it's it's a real shame, and I guess I can't blame BMW or Porsche or anybody, but it is a real shame that cars that are so good and so much fun to drive have these inherent major design flaws Yeah. that the manufacturers won't stand by either. You know, people give Ford a lot of crap because they build motors that blow up. And I'm like, well, they're friggin' (laughs) Ford. Like, Porsche builds an entire generation of cars with a fundamental design engineering flaw and won't stand by it. And even after they lose a class action lawsuit, they still go, nah, really wasn't our problem. Yeah, and I think 99... What the heck? Yeah, I think even 996s had issues with um, piston slap. And that's something it makes like a knocking sound internally, and that's something that should not happen to an engine designed by Porsche. Hmm. So, I haven't heard of that yeah. problem, but mm-hmm. it's it's very possible. I mm-hmm. haven't been on the forums enough, yeah. so apparently they all suffer from it. Once in a while, you'll see it. It's pretty rare, but yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah. Um. So you, how long did you have Lyric Motorsport? I so I sold the business in. It was 2017. Okay. So 20 years-ish, 18 years. I think it was about 18 years that I had that business. That's okay. correct. And I sold it to, um, I kind of, I selected him actually. There was a couple people interested, but uh, the person who I sold it to, he also owned another business where he worked on pretty much every kind of car that came through the door. Mm-hmm. And at Larich Motorsport, we only worked on BMW and Mini. Very rarely would I take on another name brand. Okay. It just, we weren't really good at them. Sure. Or yeah, you I, we stick were to good, what you know. Or, yeah. we, were, or we, we could be good at them, but I didn't want to invest this kind of time into it when someone right. could probably do it, you know, at, at a faster rate than us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, kind of the big selling point was this. I said, not for our, for Larich Motorsport, not every customer exclusively had BMWs. They had other brands and we couldn't service these brands. So a good selling point to to it was, well, potentially you can get a lot more customers at your other shop because I'm not touching their other brand name vehicles at all. Mm-hmm. And at his shop, now he can send all his BMWs over to Larich Motorsport. So, And the two shops are pretty unique. It's, they're probably... <laughs> about uh, three football fields away from each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And you can share equipment, tire machines, alignment machines. It's it's a cool setup that they have. not specific to the brand, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so then you sold out of the maintenance shop and started a transport company? Yeah, so so this this was good. So in 2015... 
Um, I had a friend of mine that uh, I had a couple friends of mine that were truck drivers and they were college educated and got out of the University of Akron and they said they couldn't find jobs probably because they didn't know how to market themselves is the truth. <laughs> that's a lot of truckers. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot that's of That's why truck trucking brokers exist because <laughs> the truckers can't find the customers on their own. <laughs> but I knew a couple of people making, they were doing pretty well with it. I mean, you know, theoretically what you're doing is you're taking a product, you're moving it from point A to B. How hard could that be, Doug? <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> so, yeah. So in September, it was September 2000, it was around September 2015, I bought my first semi truck. Um, I saw the business, I knew what the drivers were making. It was pretty advantageous at that time, the mm -hmm. money that you can make in trucking. And I remember my first week in trucking, me kind of hands on, you know, more like an investor, so to say, but. And the advantage I had in trucking was this. In semi-trucks, things break down constantly. Mm -hmm. Well, me coming from a mechanical background, it kind of gives me an advantage to, uh, I could you know, very easily open up kind of a shop and hire somebody to maintain and service my own semi-trucks, which I did at one point. But um, I learned very quickly, it, it's a difficult business to be in. So I started off one truck. Yep. <laughs> I started off one truck. My first week all in, all profit, I made like thirteen hundred bucks. Pretty much just staying on the back sure. in the background, doing not this bad and for doing not that, driving the truck. Not, yeah, yeah. Okay. and the driver's still making good money. I think at that time we're paying them, you know, probably like forty five, fifty cents a mile, which wasn't too bad in two thousand fifteen. Yeah, sure. So I mean, they're making decent money right then and there, driving. And you're paying them that as an owner operator, or you're just paying them that net. Like you own the truck and you buy the mile. Your... This guy puts this guy drives for me this many miles. This is how yep. much I'm paying you a mile. And you own the truck and take care of all the maintenance. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that that's 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 very good then. Okay. And uh, so I see this thirteen hundred dollars. I'm like, man, it's time to get some more of these trucks. It seems like it's it's too easy to to, <laughs> to, to do these kind week. of things. <laughs> so you know, eventually graduating to about four trucks at that time. And at that point, I started realizing that these trucks things are constantly breaking. Mm -hmm. I brokers the people that we deal with to that initially, as you know, a car broke somebody for a transportation broker for a car that you sell basically you sell somebody a car and but you're talking with the broker who's brokering a deal and making it and right. we've we've all had lies told which to our I, faces. I never do anymore like that's, okay. that's why i deal with the transport companies directly i've i've mm -hmm. had experience with with brokers yeah. and that's exactly why i don't use them yeah, yeah. so yeah with the so with the brokers um, they will tell you literally anything. They will tell you in order to get the anything load. in order to anything. get the load, and it doesn't. That's not good for business. They're like friggin' politicians. And 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 the and the issue with the broker too is they know if if they don't get used again, they really don't care. There are so many people that will at some point. There's always customers that need a broker. At yeah. That point. Yeah. I I. I could never do that. The, the hustle, like you oh, literally yeah. have to gain a new customer like every hour to be a transport broker. And it just, anyway, so, but you were, you were not hauling cars, right? You were doing LTL freight. Uh, not LTL, right? palletized freight. Okay. We were whores. Anything you could put on a pallet, 
forklift or not because i don't really care if you got to uh if you got to use a pallet jack and do it yourself we're putting it in that truck we're shipping it and i'm gonna try to make some money on it yeah all right <laughs> all right so are you still in that business i am no longer in that business okay sold it so what happened with that business was um i was having issues with the person that was running the business at that time mm-hmm and I had a couple other friends that were involved in that business at that particular time. And what we decided to essentially do was the guy that was that was kind of working for the three of us, who was a dick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ah, shoot, our filter is delayed. <laughs> we decided to, uh, you know, kind of team forces and put what we had together and start a bigger trucking company. And that's what we did. And we ended up growing out the, the trucking company to, they say it's 27 trucks. I think it was a solid 28 that we had at one time. Mm-hmm. And with 28 trucks, I think we probably had about 35 trailers at the time too. And uh, we had a pretty big business going on at this time. But what I learned too, especially in trucking, it's a lot to manage. Mm-hmm. To a certain degree, you almost, you need to have to a certain degree levels of management in that business because it's the, the trucking business. The thing about the trucking business is I met a lot of really, really, really good people in the trucking business. I also met a handful of really bad people in the trucking business mm-hmm. too. And it's it's ha- it's hard to say, as you know, in this world, you know, there's bad auto technicians, there's bad car salesmen, there's you know, sure all kinds of things like that, but. It's, it was very, very hard to manage mm-hmm. these kind of people. And maybe in particular, because it was a background I'm not used to. I'm kind of like, I'm good with technicians, especially flat rate technicians, because you pretty much hand them a chart. Yes, I'm going to help them diagnose a problem, but they're kind of like their own boss. Right. They know what they're doing. They can run their own business within your business. Yes. And you know, with the flat rate, they know if they're going to have an issue, it's coming back to them. Mm-hmm. Assuming, assuming it was something that they did where, you know, nobody's liable for anything in the trucking business. Right. And so it was about November of 2019. Um, rates were starting to really go down in the truck business. Our cost to operate, I think was somewhere about a dollar 72 a mile. And we were doing about 45,000 miles a week. Might sound a little bit low, but our utilization of the trucks wasn't the greatest. I mean, not everybody was doing the kind of mileage that they had. And mm-hmm. Plus, even though we had all brand new equipment, you still have breakdowns, whether it's right. a trailer, whether it's this transmission. Some of the new stuff breaks down more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A transmission in the brand new Volvo truck. Just there's always issues. It seems like... In trucking, I don't know who to blame, but the the quality control manufacturing, it's it doesn't seem like a quality product because you can have major problems with things after you know fifteen thousand miles. And the mm-hmm. fact is, we're not dealing with like BMW integration levels and things like that, which are you know kind of complicated to do. These are just mechanical pieces that I'm surprised some of these manufacturers haven't figured out yet what yeah. to do. So. Cost is about $1.75 or $1.72 a mile. We start, I think we ran about 45,000 miles a week. And and uh, at that particular time, it became kind of a broker's market where everything's fine and dandy when you're even making 20, 30 cents a mile if you're running 45,000 miles. But when you start losing, you know, 20 cents plus a mile, yeah. it goes down really, really, really quick. Oh. And... 
And the issue is, too, that's when the COVID thing was starting to emerge, where people were starting to develop symptoms overseas. Then, as you know, I think it was January 2020 is kind of when we had the first start of our lockdowns. Yeah. And we just didn't really have a, we didn't want to keep it going at that point, too. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was too big and there was too many factors against us. And the truth is, you know, for a while you kept on thinking when COVID first hit, it's like, all right maybe three months, maybe six months. Well, two years and we're still into this thing right now. Yeah. And it just, it was, we were in it at the wrong time for the trucking business. Sure. So it's unfortunate we had to shut the trucking business down. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So what's next? So you're, you're sold your BMW business. You shut the trucking business down. Are you just retired playing golf, living on the beach or well, dreaming I, up the next business well, idea? I think I, well, I had to stop the country club membership right after trucking because my country club I, I was a member of <laughs> closed down after 99 years. <laughs> so no golf to answer that question. Ironic so, because right after, like during <laughs> COVID is when all the country clubs that were losing money became in the black again, <laughs> like golf became popular again. It was our city friggin' owns a country club, which is a whole nother point of contention because the city yeah. shouldn't be in that business but it was losing a whole bunch of money they built mm-hmm. an eight million dollar clubhouse thanks mayor and <laughs> it was losing a ton of money and then 2020 was like the first year they ever broke even or turned a sure profit. yeah so anyway okay so you canceled your golf club membership oh yeah that was threw yeah. away your clubs what have you been doing so this is very unique that we're doing right now and uh diesel fuel distribution is what we do okay what we do is we go to companies um, I was really worried when you said very unique. I thought the next word was going to be opportunity and you were going to try to sell me Amway or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, st- I'll sell you a star leasing before I do that. All right. So you're, you're, brokering, you're brokering diesel fuel. Uh, not necessarily. So what, our, what, what the product entails is we do on-the-site delivery of diesel fuel. Okay. And a company that we use, for example, they may have like 30 trucks that they run. This particular company, and we do many companies, does uh, has those roll-off. Uh, they're called roll-offs. Kind of okay. like the big dumpsters at a construction site. Mm-hmm. If you need to throw away crap from the last 20 years or something like that. And, you know, a lot of these trucks, they can burn anywhere between like 30 and 50, sometimes 100 gallons a day. It's the way they are. So what we end up doing is we go to their lot um, after their shift because they're usually day shift guys for these roll-offs. Yep. And we have a uh, we have the proper filling equipment, and after you know they bring the truck back, we fill them up with diesel fuel, and it kind of it, right. it, it alleviates a need for a lot of these drivers to you know go to the gas station, go waste money, go see their buddy cuz a lot of a lot of these guys just mess around and sure. They just uh, they, they think pick, they they find the lot lizards and <laughs> yeah, I, get, yeah, yeah, I heard of that happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, okay, so so you have trucks go fill up other trucks. Uh, yeah. Something do you give a crap about Cannonball at all? Do I care about can- Cannonball's yeah. Cannonball's really sweet and you All uh, right. Yeah. Don't toot my horn here. We won't want to get down that road, but um, <laughs> this, is, this is a show about you. Um, <laughs> everybody says that mobile refueling is the way to break the cannonball record. So, would you say you, you could be that? You could be that guy. You have the the trucks. If we want to do mobile refueling, 
I think I could make something work. I mean, there's some <laughs> logistics behind that they have to work. Like if you have to, you know, switch over to a different, uh, you know, if you have to take a bypass down the street. But I think, it, yeah, mobile refueling would, it, it could kind of work, but it would have to be extremely, extremely high speed. Why? The, well, because it, oh, the, in the and fueling out, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, speed. Sure. yeah, yeah. The how, how many, uh, what's the rate of fuel flow with? your guys well typically trucks. you know we're in no hurry to really do this meaning sure. we don't we're not in nascar at this point sure. or f1 so i'm just i mean because you have the larger yeah. nozzles anyway for we diesel still so take, we still take it kind of slow because the mm -hmm. last thing you want to do is have a spill sure know, or anything like that and never happens to us <laughs> right. but uh you know it's about 30 gallons per minute that it rolls oh yeah that's that's pretty quick that's pretty quick yeah so yeah. two minutes you got 60 gallons yeah i so. mean that's almost to the level of the dry break you know, racing fueling. I mean, that's uh, two gallons a second. You're at a gallon every two seconds. So, yeah, that that would that would work. Yeah, but yeah, cannonball. I, Six, I could see sixty that. gallons in a cannonball car. So, about two minutes. Yeah, yeah. you you could probably actually move it up to almost like a sixty uh, sixty gallon f uh, minute flow rate. Gotcha. You probably do that, or you would use two nozzles, which we do. At, at, yeah, use two nozzles at thirty gallons a minute. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. So you do you, uh, being a BMW guy, I'm going to stay on Cannonball just for a second. All right. Uh, Alex Roy kind of brought the Cannonball back into the public eye in 2006 by breaking the record in his E39 M5. And since then, it's been all Mercedes and Audi, mm -hmm. other than the Boston Brawlers who set the second fastest time at 25.57 in their 2020 BMW M5. Yeah. Do you like? Do you want to see a BMW take it back? You know what? It it doesn't. It would be. I guess it would be nice to see that. I mean, you know, for these situations too, Audi makes a great car. You know, Mercedes makes a really good car. But it's nice to see the BMW kind of kind of break records. Sure. Yeah. It's yeah. Nice well, to they see did that. the um, they did the longest drift record right bmw did that and they they did the the mobile refueling yeah so they could keep drifting while they're yeah while the, they're going yeah the yeah. longest drift record yeah. that's uh that's that's something else right yeah there. that's pretty cool celebrity machines is a proud sponsor of switchcast celebrity machines offers more than 250 different screen accurate license plates as they appeared in movies and tv shows like back to the future ghostbusters the office the fast and the furious breaking bad and so many more Celebrity Machines also makes our Switch Cars dealer insert plates as well as our commemorative 2539 plates from the fastest cannonball run ever. Visit CelebrityMachines.com for more info and use promo code SWITCHCAST to save a whopping 25.39% at checkout. Avila Arturo asks, the F thirty three twenty eight I with a two liter turbo for people like me that don't know what an F thirty is. Asked about engine reliability and what common issues are you aware of associated with the F thirties? So the common issues the common issues with the F thirty and that four cylinder engine in particular are the timing chains. Mm -hmm. The timing chains stretch and the timing guides break okay. on those particular vehicles. And every once in a mile, there was a service bulletin at a very early age of that vehicle where you start up the car and it would puff out smoke. Okay. And it was actually, it was an updated um, turbo drainage. And they in integrated the valve into there. And that uh, wasn't an easy job to do. Usually the turbo had to be taken out. But 
uh, those were the two things on that on that vehicle in particular. Um, I th- um, a good thing on that particular vehicle was I, we like doing oil changes um, at least about every seven thousand miles mm-hmm. on that car, and that seems to help it hold up a little bit. But even with oil change intervals around seven thousand miles or so, you can still potentially have the timing chain issues with those gotcha. things. Just, Is there any telltale sign of it? I not re- not really. Okay. Usually, just at some if point, the engine you'll start blows it up, up and you'll hear you know the, that you'll hear the noises. Yeah. Okay. From it. Okay. Good. Not a bad motor, but it's you know not one of the best motors because gotcha. you would think an awesome motor. You're taking a, a great straight six motor, and you're just cutting off two of the cylinders, less moving parts. But it didn't work that way on that particular case. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You're putting boost in. You're changing things. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stefan Schaefer asked if one was going to boost an M20 G260 E30 for endurance racing, what would you recommend for mechanical po- components and fueling slash engine control? The primary goal is reliable power. So uh, this actually goes to one of my other questions. So he, Stefan is my Lemons teammate, and we have a BMW E30 in 1988 mm-hmm. that you know, lemons used to be $500 cars. We have like 20 grand into this $500 car. Yeah. And we're still barely cracking the top 10 in lemons. It's so competitive and it is dominated a lot by E30s. So this is a 24 hour lemons that we're talking. Yes. So what do we do to get more power without sacrificing reliability? I don't have a lot of experience with that motor especially with doing uh, power additives like a force induction kind of setup. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think, though, and off the top of my head, we would, if we could, some kind of force induction, even like a supercharger would be good uh, because you're not going to have like the extreme oil temperatures of the turbo system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a motor I'm not really fam- familiar about in that particular gotcha. kind of case. But that's, Probably because they're too reliable if they never come in for work. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry about that one. It's just that's a really cool race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean the the car's been great, but it's just it's so competitive now. It's so competitive. I think 318 Ti's were kind of a hot setup. Okay. And I think some guys were even running like the Acura Integras and doing pretty well in that series. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah, we so. run against some of those guys. They are fast. <laughs> yeah. Three pedals says Tom is the man. Stephen Dumperth said something to that effect, too. (laughs) Ah, let's see. The Sassy Man says, ooh, a BMW episode. Uh, Thoughts about aftermarket aluminum housing water pumps for BMW engines, specifically the N54. I'm having a bit of experience. Having a bit of experience with them. I know that they're a common fail point. Are the metal ones worth the hype? And also, has anyone figured out how to reseal F10 headlights? Thanks for doing the podcast every week. Doug and company has been tons of fun to listen to. Well, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Thank All you. All right, so aluminum housing water pumps for the N54 engine. M is in Michael. N is in November. N is in November. N is in November. Aluminum housing water pumps. Well, that's an electric water pump on that particular vehicle, so it all comes in case. So I'm not... Um, I understand what he's talking about, but still, I think on if on those electric water pumps, regardless if they're the composite or the all aluminum, you really need to change them about every 60,000 miles. Because the issue that you run into is not necessarily the housing of the pump, mm-hmm. but it's actually the electronics of the pump itself seem to be the issue. Gotcha. And every 60,000 miles, it's good to replace those those kind of pumps. So 
I don't have that much experience with the all aluminum housings. I can see in certain situations where they could be beneficial, but still it's usually that water pump fails because of the internals of the pump itself, okay. not the housings. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. And resealing F10 headlights, is that something so, you guys even deal with or is that? Well, the issue with that, that's something we don't really deal with. Okay. And the issue is it's kind of the liability behind that case. I don't know what it's cost because I haven't replaced one in a long time, but F10 headlight, depending if it's, if it's an LCI or not, I mean, it could probably be $2,000 for one headlamp. And the last thing I want to do, and I've read things that people put them in ovens again to a specific temperature where they can then at that point they can reseal it. But it's something that probably can be done, but it's something that I would not want to take the liability towards mm -hmm. because of the other issues which I can cause when I'm, I'm down in there. I mean, there are certain components of your vehicle that are made to take apart, kind of like the braking system. You know, there, you could slap some pads on the car, change the rotors, things like that. It was kind of designed to take apart. But when you start dealing with like headlamps, sealed items, air conditioning, evaporator cores, where you have to pull out the dashboard, these components of the vehicle were not really designed to take in and out of the, of the vehicle. So with that being said, you can always run into some kind of problems. But yeah. the F10, I just, uh, if you're at the point of no return where, you know, if you're at the point of no return where you don't care about it, I mean, it'd be interesting to try. But to me, it's just it's a lot of liability sure. to open up an expensive headlamp. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could just do like a, you know, get some Walmart LED yeah. strips, oh, you know, yeah. the, the, the I, rally lights or something it, like that. Is J.C. Whitney still around? Because if you don't oh, want to go to Walmart, yes. you can order from order J.C. From the Whitney. Catalog. Yeah. 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 Forget the F10 headlight. Everybody's going LED now anyway. So just, yeah. <laughs> Buy some LED ones, bolt them on the front, and put M stickers on yeah. them. Uh, Dick Kurtz asked, uh, is an O2 E46 M3, 37,000 miles on it. Do I really need to subframe support it prior to seeing any significant cracks? And what else should I be doing as preventive maintenance? So the M3 itself is inherently, um, is inherently they, they redone that where it is somewhat... The subframe is stronger than, let's say, the regular E46 on that particular vehicle. But especially if it's a car that you're going to keep streetable and even a few track days, you should be okay. But if this is a car that you say, with 36,000 miles, if it's a car you plan on keeping because it still has a lot of service life left into it, it's really not a bad idea to bite the bullet. It takes about two days to do the job. Just You have to remove the subframe. And uh, Turner Motorsport, I think, makes a really nice kit, which is ECS tuning now, actually. They make a really nice gusset kit, and you can weld these. Gu you remove the subframe, remove the gussets. Then you in uh, reinforce part of the frame on there, too. And after that, you want a primer, and you know you kind of want to paint things up so they yeah. the better protect it from rust and corrosion and put it up there. But I think it's an excellent idea. And another thing I would probably do too, as we learned with some of the Turner Motorsport vehicles when they ran in the series in the early 2000s, where they had to run, it was a Toyo series, where they would actually, Turner Motorsport figured it out where 
they can take a brand new tire and you shave it down mm -hmm. and it would actually last a little bit longer for their particular need and situation. But those particular cars, they also had a kit to reinforce the front subframe. And to me, you might as well do both when you're doing that. Sure. I think if if you if you plan on keeping this car for a while and want to drive it as an enthusiast and have one less thing to worry about, subframe, in this area, I, I don't think the subframe's going to go, but it's not a bad idea. It's, sure. it's insurance. He, he didn't tell us what he's doing with it, mm -hmm. though. So, like, I mean, he might be using it as a safari car. So, so yeah. if you're going off jumps, you probably should. Yeah, that's so, true. Or trying I don't to play know, Evil Knievel or running from the cops. I, like, <laughs> I, we need more context for these questions. <laughs> Uh, Troy Lee asked, uh, best route as far as building a reliable weekend car. Would love to build a 500-wheel horsepower without meth. Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. Meth isn't... That's, that's, uh, that'll take it's the family and teeth, teeth, teeth away. Yeah, that's yeah. what I heard. Um, you should probably do it without cocaine and all that. <laughs> uh, but with LSD. You definitely want LSD if you're building a 500-wheel horsepower car. <laughs> Uh, the, it would only be driven on weekends, but could still be a family car when needed. So no roll cage, stripped interior, etc. What is your recommendation for best platform as a starting point? Well, best is kind of, are we look, are we, we want performance. I'm assuming we want performance and reliability. Performance and reliability without like fundamentally changing the car. I mean, to me, an economical way to go would probably be going something with like an F10 uh, like a 550 all-wheel drive. All you have to do is put a nice tune on that thing. Yeah. And right there, you're at right 500 horsepower. And if you get a tune like a Dynan tune, for example, which, you know, Dynan is not necessarily the most aggressive tune out there as opposed to like a Burger Motorsport JB4. And But the fact is it's a very, very good tune and it has a tremendous amount of reliability and really doesn't push the boundaries of the vehicle. But I would think like if you need a car that's going to haul, if you need a four-door car, I think going with like the F10 would be a good choice. And even if you want the all wheel drive version, which is pretty cool. And you can actually get the all wheel drive version with a six speed manual. It's kind of rare, but we've had a couple of them mm -hmm. and you put that tune in there and yeah, the car is a little bit big and heavy compared to other five series like the E39, for example, but it's a nice smooth running car, relatively reliable. There's certain things you have to look for. Um, on the five, on the five series, it's really good to look, I mean, they say 14s, but especially on the 2015 and newer's you have the, it would be the N60 or N63, it would be the, um, TU3. So technical update three. And that seems to be holding up a little bit better than the, than like the 2011s to 13s or so. But okay. so you could even say like 14 and newer seems to be a little bit better. And I would get one of those and put a tune on it, and you got everyday reliability. Yeah. That is a, a big advantage of the modern cars. You may say, well, you get more of a driving experience with the older cars, but with all the twin turbo stuff, like you are just a tune away from five, 600 horsepower. That's, it's really pretty that's amazing. That's correct. And you can still run it on pump so, gas, too, without meth. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, we're going to go to our uh, question of the week here. This is brought to you by Nuts for Sticks. That's right. We're rebranding a little bit. Uh, Nuts for Sticks is our merchandise store, and we've got some new T-shirts coming soon and stickers, too. Uh, so if you go to nutsforsticks.com, you can uh, save 10% off of your merchandise order by entering discount code SWITCHCAST. So the Nuts for Sticks question of the week will get a free T-shirt of their cho choice from the, the merchandise store. And it is from Marcus Bittner. 
And he said, N18 Mini Cooper keeps going into limp mode from the third to fourth shift. Keeps throwing code 36C9, quote-unquote plausibility monitoring of the relative fuel mass. I've tried everything and can't figure it out. Um, Have you tried trading for a Porsche? That might fix your problem. (laughs) Don't buy a Mini. (laughs) All right, serious answer. What 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 year are we looking? What is uh, the, can I N18 see the okay. Mini Cooper? All this internal code stuff N18 here. Mini Cooper. Okay, and we go from the and limp mode third to fourth. And I, I'm assuming it's a manual transmission on that too. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a third That's to fourth a, shift. Sounds like a third to fourth. Guy shift driving an automatic usually doesn't know which gear he's in, or even <laughs> if he has an automatic or a CVT. Yeah, yeah CVT. He's making this wow 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 noise. Yeah. All right. Plausibility monitoring of the relative fuel mass. What do you think? Plausibility monitoring. So the first thing that I would probably check on that particular vehicle is it almost it, it it does somewhat and a lot of guys use software as um a magic wand sure and you cannot always believe in that magic wand but it almost seems like if i can see this code that we're getting again because i want to really look at this right there relative fuel mass it's it, it almost sounds like we're having like some kind of air leak within the system okay that's what it sounds like to me and, and that stuff's like the hardest thing to chase down sometimes, right? Because it's not just a part to replace. Not necessarily. I mean, some of these, a, a leak, I mean, a lot of times you can use like a smoke type tester on it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if that particular vehicle has some kind of aftermarket part on it. It may, it may not. But I would, you know, the problem with the smoke test is you're not even putting a PSI worth of, of, sure. of into it. So you can't it really test it. It could be the vanity plate. I've never seen a Mini Cooper without a vanity plate, so maybe he put the wrong but, plate on. And but what I would what I would end up one thing that I would end up doing too on that particular vehicle is I would ride around with some kind of reliable scan tool, like an Auto Logic, is what we kind of liked, mm-hmm. and it can kind of tell you what's going on with that engine too. But I've seen a similar code to that that we had to kind of chase our tail, where. Um, <laughs> And it was the first time I saw him. We chased it for a while. It was an E46, I believe, 325. And when he would get past about 5,000 RPMs, the car would go into limp mode. And what we found out was um, it was actually there was some kind of issue or restriction in the catalytic converters. So one way you can actually test this car is if there's you know a pre and a post O2 sensor. If you want to pull that post O2 sensor out, just to kind of vent it right there, and... I got to figure out the location. If the location is safe where, you know, potentially you're going to have fire coming out of there, that's going to give you um, some less exhaust restriction. And that would actually be something that you can test right there to see if you're having issues with the converter or not. Awesome. I, and if you do have fire coming out, you should probably just leave the exhaust off because that's a cool modification. Oh, it looks really cool. It's, you should keep it going. Awesome. You should keep it going. Yeah. See what else you can catch on fire. Oh, if you down have there. animal, you know, pets that you're tired <laughs> of, make sure they're in close proximity when you're doing but this diagnostic. You can, so you can pull the O2 sensor. It's going to be loud. Some people may flinch as you're driving by them, <laughs> <laughs> and just just gun it, man, and see what happens in that case. All righty. Mm-hmm. Hugo Dennison, opinion on E36 six cylinders with over 150k miles. It um, are they about to blow? 
E36 six cylinders, 150,000 miles. It depends on your oil changes. If you have the guy that's, you know, changing the oil, you know, at that interval, I think if you have the guy that's going 15,000 miles on the oil change, it's, it's really hard to tell the internal uh, components of that particular vehicle. Um, motors are pretty good on that car. I mean, there's things you got to watch out for. It's like, you know, sometimes the Vanoses go on those things, but that's something that you can replace. That would be a single Vanos on that E36. And um, the other thing is, um, I'm trying to think right now, um, the oil, I would check out, there's an oil pump nut. On the oil pump, there's a, on the oil pump, which is inside the oil pan of that particular vehicle, um, it's chain driven with a sprocket. And I have seen, as well as others, where that nut can back off or loosen up. And this is actually on almost all M motors too, whether it's an M as in Michael, you know, a 50, 52, you know, a, a 54, where this, this reverse threaded nut can kind of back off. And when it backs off, you lose oil pressure. And um, at that time, my friend uh, TC Klein, who was actually mm -hmm. at one time, I think he was the service manager or store manager at Volkswagen years ago, Volkswagen of Akron years ago. Now he has his own shop. Well, he's had his own shop and he's popular with with with, with racing yep um shop in uh, columbus i think in almost dublin area somewhere around there and he also has one i think in santa barbara right now but he goes once that light comes on you have about 15 seconds to turn off the motor now on that particular nut a lot of people will lock tight it red some people will safety wire it to me the simplest thing you do is you, you tack weld both sides of the nut to the sprocket you don't have to worry about the issue because imagine that safety wire came off. Right. Could happen. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. I like to weld that nut on there. And, you know, you're going to have oil leaks. You're going to have hardened seals. But, you know, typically those motors were pretty good. And they were still the uh, the cast iron block. Just, you know, as with any car, just don't overheat them. Sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, it's, it's sad I have to say that. Some people like to, I think, test how long they can be driven for overheated. Or I think, I think there's a lot of problems that can be avoided by well, not being an idiot. Well, I think a lot of the issues too are some people. Not everybody's a car guy, Doug, or or that. But a lot of people don't realize that. Hey, when that thing is overheating, some people are like, "Oh, it's overheating. What's the big deal?" It's like some people just don't. People, people <laughs> you know, are not I, educated I, on I the spent fact. I a brief amount of time in auto tech school. Okay, and in the engine performance yeah. class. Uh, they said, they asked us, this guy was hilarious and he loved throwing curveballs at us. And he asked us, what is the first thing you do when you see the oil light come on in your car? And all these guys are trying to raise their hand. Oh, you shut the car off. You pull the side of the road. You put your blinker on. You do the, You put the clutch in. Yeah. He goes, no. You ask yourself, is my car under warranty or not? <laughs> if it's under warranty, you keep driving. Because you don't want a rebuilt engine. You want it replaced. If it's not, you shut the dang thing off yeah. and pull over. Yeah. So, um, Ben's yeah. E36 asked, I have an S50 mm -hmm. E36 okay. M3, which yep. has some suspension and brake upgrades, and mm -hmm. I would like to play with the motor a bit. I would like 300-ish wheel horsepower. What's the best route? Uh, sell it and buy a Porsche 996. <laughs> okay. Great motor. Three liter. I think it's a, that would be the three liter variant. Um, yep. They actually, I think it actually came out in production in 1994 as well um, in the European and Canadian markets where they actually had that motor. I'm going to say it was 286 horsepower, six individual throttle bodies. 
Um, this particular car, I believe, is like 240 horse, and he wants to get to around 300 horsepower. Yeah. The, wheel, so. Three, oh, 300 wheel. 300 wheel. So he wants to add uh, almost uh, like 40%. Uh, the most reliable way to do this is going to be with force induction, and I'd recommend a supercharger kit for that particular okay. car. But uh, the one thing you have to watch out for with the supercharger kit is it is actually adding more additional force on the harmonic balancer as well as the Woodruff key in there. So I don't know if they have updated Woodruff keys, but sometimes I've seen those keys shear off before off the crankshaft, off to the harmonic balancer pulley. But, you know, here's the thing. You can do, you can put the world's greatest exhaust on that car. You can put the world's greatest intake manifold on that car. You can put the world's best cams in that particular car where you, you'll lose your low-end power and you'll still have your higher-end power. But the achieve, you know, the 300 mark wheel horsepower, it's going to be almost impossible without forced induction. Sure. Well, those motors are, I don't want to say over-engineered because that's an overused term, but they, like, they squeeze a lot a lot of power out of those as for that tech factory right i mean that engine came in the production in 1995 so that could have been in development since the early 90s yeah and back then i mean 200 kind of a lot of power back then yeah i mean it was sure. it was it was it was a reasonable bond uh, power sure so All not right, so like a 996 or whatever you talk about but um <laughs> i don't know if you want to answer this but we have you know in, in every business there's competition good and bad uh, we have a local shop called Koala Motorsports. Yes, yeah. Brett. Yeah. What's your opinion on them? Highly, highly. Brett is very highly knowledgeable on the particular vehicle. He has a lot of experience in the vehicles. A lot more than I actually have experience. He's seen mm -hmm. a lot more shit than I've ever seen, probably. <laughs> Brett's a good guy, and he runs a good shop. So okay, I've always had a lot of respect for the way he, he does things up there, too. Okay. That says a lot coming and I, from you because obviously we've all heard stories, oh, yeah. wild stories on both sides yeah. of the aisle. Uh, I'm not here to smear anyone, but I had to ask because you know I've I've heard people who swear by him and I've heard people who swear at him. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sure it's happened to me too. Yeah. He runs a, he he runs a tight shop. He yeah. really does, and he has good volume. And I think he's actually he started to do Mercedes and Porsche, if I'm correct, mm -hmm. on that. So he's still he's still like he's probably still like me with the Audis, where um, <laughs> eh, they're a little difficult to work on. Not a bad car, cool car, but just not really my thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So my my buddy Donadel Dariush, he loves BMWs. He likes buying them and and flipping them, and um, he. <laughs> couldn't be here tonight he had to get back to work tomorrow but he really wanted to be and i feel like he should have just written the show notes because he gave me like 15 questions for you but we'll get through a few of them they're they're all really good cool um this one i actually came up with but he reworded it better uh is the e30 m3 worth the hype because it's you know 150 grand plus or minus depending on the condition or is it an under unpowered overpriced hodgepodge that enthusiasts or collectors have blown out of proportion especially when compared to a 325 is driving experience 150 grand price? doesn't sound bad i thought you sell them for 200 here doug <laughs> <laughs> no no what do you think is that car worth the money or is it you're buying a start of a legacy right there m3 to me is an amazing car 
And these cars are becoming more and more rare. And one of my favorite cars, and it was very low production, was the E30. It would be the M3 Evo convertible. I think they they oh, made gosh. they what? they made almost they didn't make very many of them. But you know, it's a unique car. Um, it's got the you know the the, the wider rear fenders on it. Quarter panels on there, the front fenders, and you know, it has the suspension, it has the tuning, has in the US, it has you know, the 2.4 liter motor in there. And um, it's one of those things that there's hype about it now, and it's probably going to stay that way for a while. And this is more like car market things that you're more familiar with than I am. And the uh, question was just with your experience with them, do you think that driving experience is worth you know, 5x what an E36 M3 goes for? Um, or is it? Is there some other value that you see in them? Well, besides, you know, the nice thing about that particular car is you have the lightest weight M3 that there's out there. And as you know, when you reduce that kind of weight, different things can kind of happen to the vehicle. Things are more responsive. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a great car. It's fun to drive. But, you know, technology is a really nice thing. Yeah. And even E36, or sure. I, I think at the end of the day, having like even e36 or even an e46 m3 um even though the e30 is a legend in its own right you're probably going to have more fun and it's you're going to have some of the modern amenities to the vehicle more modern even though we're still talking about a 20 year old car as opposed to a 30 year old plus car right now and uh no it's a great car it's a piece of history yeah but you know everyday driving i mean i think you'd probably prefer even the e36 or e46 or like an e92 i still like the e92 a lot yeah the v8 i I, it's cool love that motor it's cool v8 the revs to 8400 i'll such a good sound (laughs) i love they're pretty reliable too other than the rod bearings (laughs) yeah the rod bearings well that's been an issue since the e30 the e46 the s54 motor hmm so it's it's just you know that's a really really long crankshaft to be throwing you know that kind of rpm and i think in 2002 is when they started you know replacing the rod bearings and those things but there is an m3 out there that nobody should ever buy it was one that i owned new it was an e92 before we knew about the rod bearing thing but i mean i guess it didn't matter it was under warranty i bought it new i probably took it straight to the track i drove it so hard that i took it back to the dealer and said i think i need new brakes <laughs> and uh they didn't want to replace them under warranty but they were they were hurting but i i found videos the other day of me just like pinging it off the rev limiter dropping the clutch yeah. doing burnouts drifting and this was all in like i sold it with like 1500 miles so yeah i should probably post the vin uh, on VinWiki uh, or something and just be like yeah. don't ever buy this car yeah. i mean i would i would think too that the dealerships can see the way the tires have worn and be able to tell what you were doing that weekend. <laughs> it's a good thing I wasn't working there. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, hey, Dan Doucette, who knows more than everyone, did you know that there was an E30 M3 Evo Cabriolet? Dan, did you know that? Dan is in the peanut gallery. Hey, Dan Doucette, who knows more than everyone, did you know that there was an E30 M3 Evolution Cabriolet? I know. I've seen stuff about E30 M3 cabs. Okay. <laughs> kind of like the Jag... Point, point for Tom. Like the Jaguar we were talking about earlier. 
Yeah. XKRS that's right. GT. XKRS GT. I didn't know that was a thing. You were like, that's a lot of letters. I'm like, but it's, it's really cool. <laughs> Julian Higgins from the live stream asked, what are the most common failures on R53 minis that you've seen? R53 minis? Mm-hmm. Um, timing chains. And a lot, of, a lot of the thing about that particular Mini Cooper is they do have an oil consumption rate, and they only hold, if I remember correctly, about five quarts of oil. And sometimes the, the thing about that particular vehicle is you really need to check. You need to start by checking the oil level like once a week just to get a good frame of you know how much oil consumption we have in our particular usage of this vehicle. Some people drive harder or longer more than others so i'm not going to tell everyone hey check their oil every week but you want to start you want to always make sure that your oil level is sufficient in that vehicle and that's going to save solve a lot of the problems okay with that r53 so thanks all right so more from donadell um let's see why haven't e28 m5 values risen as much nope uh, not answering that. They had. The, yeah. uh, what's the next BMW skyrocket? Nope, disqualified. We don't answer questions on future values. Will pre nineteen eighties BMWs receive receive the same love as post nineteen eighties car? Donadell, what the heck do you think this is? An investment show? <laughs> Will we look at the current Gen M three M four as a future classic? Gosh darn it! Uh, what happened to the M four GTS when it launched? It was heralded as a future classic, sure to go up in value. What the heck? These are all dollar... Okay. <laughs> Here's a better question from Donadell. What motor is your least favorite to work on? Prob- probably the hot V motor, which would be like the, the N is in November 63 motor, and that's the typical motor in like the 550s, the 650s, uh, 750s. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, they're somewhat complicated to work on, and there's a couple things going on. And when I say a hot V, what happens is, you know, in the middle of the engine where the V is at, in most cases, you have the intake manifold in there. On these BMWs, you have the turbos there. So, mm. and where traditionally, uh, you know, you would have the, um, the exhaust manifolds or the headers, Right there, that's where you have the intake system. Everything's a little bit reversed, but it's for space efficiency too. And those particular motors, depending on what you can do, they're kind of stuffed in there. They got some, it, it's, a compl- it's a somewhat complicated motor. And they've been known to have valve seal problems, timing chain issues with that, uh, turbo issues, high pressure fuel pumps. <laughs> the yeah. list goes on. It's it, uh, It's one of these things. You know, we're yeah. talking about experience that I've seen. Is everybody prone to every single one of these issues I'm talking about? No. The answer is no. Yeah. Kind of like the subframe thing that we had in the earlier. The the person asked about the E46. I mean, uh, M3 about reinforcing the subframe on the thing. And I mentioned, yeah, we should do that to the front and the rear subframe on that vehicle. But still, it's you know. I don't, I've I've only seen it once. Sure, yeah. You just kind of watch it. But I'm sure there's that dealership technician or shop somewhere wherever that's seen five of them in a month. Just the way it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People claim you need to immediately see to the quote unquote big three on S54 motor cars. Is this true? If a car has no notable signs of wear on these components, do you need to dump the cash in to preventatively fix them? 
and they said on the big three on S fifty four motor cars. Okay. So would that be uh, Vanos rod bearings and on the S fifty four motor? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. Here's the thing about the S fifty four. So that engine came in, you know, as you know, the M three, as yep. well as it came in the Z. I think there was one year M-Coop where they put an M Roadster, and they also put that motor in the Z three body style too. Mm-hmm. Um, which was pretty cool. I think it was only for the year 2002 where you can actually have this 330 horsepower in a Z3, which is kind of cool. Oh. Then they had the Z4. Dan, did you know that? And the and the clown shoe, too. I think the clown shoe, at one point, the only year 2002 is where they had the S54 motor. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's a motorsports motor. I mean, it's it's made... BMW thinks it's going to be a get-driven, and it is harder than most vehicles out there. And yes, there are certain things and, you know, preventive maintenance means, I mean, yeah, valve adjust is probably a good idea every 30,000 miles, even though there's been times I've opened up these things at 30, 40,000 miles for a valve adjust. And I might, I marginally change two shims out because I, even though I wanted to get to the, you know, the better end of the spectrum for the tolerances on these things. And, you know, of course you're going to like with anything mechanical, of course, you're going to have, you know, water pumps that go out and and things like that but um you know preventively only thing i could say on a car like that i highly recommend is whatever the oil change really interval is in the most cases they say about 15 you want to cut that in half mm-hmm. or about once a year regardless of mileage and one of the studies that we actually we did and the way we can do this is through oil analysis and everyone says hey use blackstone labs they're like the best they're really good but here's a little known secret about oil analysis doug up in the uh, Brexville area off 82, there's a CAT dealership, C-A-T, where they have the heavy machineries. It's the yellow kind of label that says CAT on it with a mm-hmm. triangle. Yep. Well, they were at that time doing oil analysis for like $16. You go in there, you buy a kit, and the way they interpret the oil is very, very similar to the Blackstone Labs, and you're paying one-fourth the cost, and you're getting it back within like a day or so, hmm. the results. So oil analysis do help. Uh, you want to be truthful about the kind of the kind of oil, the amount of time uh, the the time the oil was changed, the amount of miles on there, so they can better interpret the oil and how it's working. But with that, you know, you can look at all kinds of different things too, like wares of certain things. If you find you know tin in something, you might have some rod bearing issues right there. Yeah. You find other metals, you might have different issues, but. You know, oil change intervals in half seem to really keep this thing around. And to me, oil change, uh, you know, cutting the oil change interval typically in half or changing it at least once a year is, uh, it's cheap insurance to me. Hmm. So That's it's, awesome. it's really cheap insurance to me. All right, good. Uh, he said, is the most expensive thing in the world a truly a cheap German car or is it Doug's Monte Carlo build? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> All right, skipping that question. Uh, I think this will be the last question here. We're running up on, on time, and uh, then we'll get to the props and flops and all that. This is a great question. Again, not mine. Credit to Dunadel. What is your ideal three-car garage from BMW's history? Three-car garage from BMW's history. That's something I have to think about. SwitchCast is brought to you by BoxCast. BoxCast is a live streaming company based in Cleveland, Ohio, and they serve broadcasters and viewers in more than 200 countries. Their founders launched BoxCast back in 2013 with one purpose, to make people part of the experience. 
If you're looking to live stream your podcast, church service, car show, sporting event, wedding, or even your cannonball attempt, BoxCast is an easy, flexible live streaming platform for organizations. BoxCast is so easy, we are broadcasting this show live with our phone. Head over to switchcars.com slash BoxCast for your free trial. All right. Ideal three-car garage, Tom. Today. Might, it might change tomorrow. Um, Alpinias count, don't they, as BMWs? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I like the B7 a lot. Okay. With a cool sedan what just generation? to have. Like the older B7 the newest Turbo? One. Or the, okay. the, the newest one, yeah. All right. Um, I like that vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I think... I like I like more of the modern cars, but I do respect the old. I mean, for a while it was the E thirty nine M five, but I, I think like it I think it'd be cool to have a BMW five oh seven. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You got to have something that's a, a conversation piece to that. You know, even BMWs, even a new kid might see that car who has a respect for the brand and and really likes that it's car. An incredibly unique design. Yeah, there's almost nothing like it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. Okay, B seven five oh seven and number three. I hate to say that. I think I'd have to go with. I'm an M three guy, so I think I'd have to go with the G thirty. Okay. So with the big grills. All right, all right. For the rest of us, which generation is that? That's the latest one there is. Okay. With the, uh, I don't know. I'm sure they have a uh, the, the massive the, the mas- meme sized grill, something like that. I don't know what you would call that. It's got. It's got oh, more grill than flavor flave, right? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it's no, 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 it's it's what's it's got more grills than George Foreman. <laughs> oh, yes, we're just getting going. We're almost done. All right. Um, Tom, thank you so much. You've been a wealth of knowledge here. I hope you BMW guys have been helped out by this. And um, if you have more questions, we'll give you his information to to get a hold of him if he wants you to get a hold of him if (laughs) if you have questions. So um, we're going to go to the props and flops of the week now brought to you by Switch Cars. Switch Cars is the enthusiast dealership where we buy, sell, consign, service, and store only cars that we like ourselves. So no minis. (laughs) Check out our hand-picked inventory at switchcars.com. Our pick of the week from SwitchCars inventory is a 1986 Porsche 944 with red painted fuchs, 66,000 miles, and more documentation than a truckload of immigrants from the Mexican border. (laughs) Presented in impeccable condition, defying its age and the mileage with major service recently performed. They're asking 25 grand, and if you mention SwitchCast, you'll get a $1,000 discount. The flop of the week, which, my gosh, if I had a dollar for every person that told me about it, I could have gone out and rescued the boat. But, of course, it is that cargo ship carrying 4,000 Porsches, Audis, Lamborghinis, and other badge products that caught fire and was abandoned in the Atlantic Ocean. But I'm pretty sure I know how the fire started. How did it start, Doug? Somebody was dry revving a Lamborghini. (laughs) Or, 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 or they were just idling it, <laughs> yeah. idling a Ferrari. Well, there's no Ferrari. Yeah, 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 yeah. Product, yeah. So. 
All right. Um, all right. So that's the flop of the week. The prop of the week. We're going to do quits, hit, hits here. I uh, posted this morning on a Cannonball Facebook group because we can't have any episode without some Cannonball content. And I said, tell me you're a Cannonballer without telling me you're a Cannonballer. And I, my line was, I don't know who won the Super Bowl. So we're going to read off other Cannonballers' responses to tell me you're a Cannonballer without telling me you're a Cannonballer. Mason Dibley, I don't have any usable trunk space in my car. Jay Roberts, where can I install six USB ports and two Garmin mounts in my car? Aaron Meisner, I have spent a lot of time learning about how gas pump shutoff systems work. Nick <laughs> Charlie Kruger, I know the max amp draw of my car and all available alternator upgrades, but I know nothing about car audio. Travis Bell, I own an ambulance, yet I have no training as a paramedic. <laughs> Nick Ulliman, the countermeasures in my cost car cost four times what the car cost. Romy Clarion, I've temporarily imported an Audi Avant TDI into the U.S. Uh, Jay Cooper, speed limit? What speed limit? Uh, Bradley Young, I want a set of stabilized binoculars. Nick Bygrave, looking for cars for sale in colors that are difficult to describe. Brett Stevens, I've researched fuel tank venting. Dave Black, I always look back at every on-ramp. Uh... James Royston, I watched that whole football match and never saw any owls, much less a superb owl. Uh, Alex Davis, there's an unmarked switch in my car and multiple household plugs. Steve Brown, uh, the guy with a 160-gallon tank in his uh, bed. He says, my da daily driver technically needs a DOT number and hazmat placards. <laughs> uh, CJ Watson, Watson, my daily driver has a kitchen timer on the dash. <laughs> Alan Rowe, I know how many gas pumps are at a pilot in Beaver, Utah. <laughs> yeah, I've been to that one. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Fergie Ferg says, just put the groceries on top of that gas tank in the trunk. <laughs> Rich Napoli says, I've sat in Alex Roy's police car. And Helene Delango, Mark, do you know how to pronounce her name? I don't know. Okay. Helen, I've met up with sketchy dudes by dumpsters behind a shopping center. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you know you're a cannonballer. Uh, anyway. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. You've blown my mind because I don't know what half of this stuff you said meant, but thank you. Thankfully, our, our listeners did. Uh -huh. um, so, how can people get in touch with you or find you or follow your shenanigans or your business ventures on the webs of the inter? Um, yeah. If they want to follow you, Instagram, I would, Facebook. Or? Instagram is probably the best okay. way to get a hold of me. Okay. What's so, your Instagram? It is TJ underscore larich cool mm -hmm. all right tj underscore larich he's tagged in my uh post as well mm -hmm. so if you want to bother him with your bmw questions he may or may not answer if you want to send him <laughs> some good bourbon for helping you out with your car i think he'd <laughs> he'd, he'd do it for that so mm -hmm. <laughs> um well thank you for being on really appreciated having you it's been it's been real it's been fun and it's been real fun thank you very much Yes. It's been incredible. It's been awesome. See you at the Schwitz on Friday. I might be able to make it, yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you to my co-host, 
Thank you to our sponsors, BoxCast, Nuts for Sticks, Switch Cars, Celebrity Machines, and Stephen Holm Woodworking, who made us this amazing desk. Thank you to our producer and call screener, Ethan Huffnagel. And our bumper music is provided by Emily and Ivory. You can stream their full album <laughs> on Spotify or SoundCloud. This episode will be available Friday with better audio and audio format wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m. And we'll look forward to answering your automotive questions to help you on the drive of your life. <laughs> Thank you.